Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. For more information and to donate online, go to 3cr.org.au. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Well, good morning, good morning, and welcome to the 3CR Gardening Show. My name is A.B. Bishop, and I'm standing standing in for Pam Vardy, this morning, who is uh, off being terrorised by the grandkitties. Uh, look, joining us in the studio today is a man who can hopefully explain the difference between the mushrooms that we can put, pick to add to our fungi fettuccine and those to avoid at this time of year, Greg Balderston from Longanomus Plants. Also joining us is someone who, who I've discovered uh, tries to stop his plants from growing, Craig Wilson from Gentiana Nursery, who enjoys a bit of bonsaiing, and a woman who's aiming to grow zucchinis big enough to live in, <laughs> Chloe Foster. Good morning, everybody. Good morning, everyone. The sun was up this morning. It was. It was. It made a, uh, a big difference, didn't it? Oh, a huge difference. And it was light at a respectable hour. Yeah. I'm just. It's been so dark for about two or three weeks That's now in right. the mornings, and it's yeah. just. It's, it's good to catch the sunrises though. I, yeah. I love watching a sunrise, but I'm not a, a morning person, so uh, yeah, that's true. Uh, it's so nice to wake up and still yeah. be able to get the sunrise uh, I, before you go to work. Or I'm sitting yeah. there twiddling my farmers, waiting for it to get light. <laughs> <laughs> I get up and go for a walk in the morning, and I can, but the hill that I walk up, if I look out, you can see over to the Dandenongs, and the sunrises have been absolutely beautiful. Yeah, but yeah. getting up out of bed when it's pitch black is uh, If there's really any colour in the sky, I'm out of bed in a flash. And <laughs> You're <laughs> good. Yeah. So can you see this, uh, the, yeah, the distance my, from your place? You my bedroom window opens straight out to the east, so Lovely. I can sort of open one eye, and if, if there's any, co- any hint of colour in the sky... I'm uh, my boots on and I'm out in the middle of the paddock with my phone camera. (laughs) (laughs) Waiting for that good sunrise. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, it was nice. And it was misty this morning and I've discovered I think that eastern grey kangaroos have evolved uh, to be completely um, impossible to see in misty conditions. They are... It was just insane. I I mean, yeah, totally. I drive along at about, you know, 30k now at this time of, you know, really early in the morning. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, yeah, Chloe knows. (laughs) Very early when, uh, very slowly when there's uh, animals around. And uh, they were right next to me before I noticed them. It was quite insane. So did you guys have mist? No. No, I didn't have any mist. There was uh, low low hugging mist where it's uh, like there's cloud, the ground's cloud. Um, yes. So you can see across the top of it, and yeah. yeah so just driving south of Romsey, there's, um, I love that too. But I, I didn't notice it before I left, so I probably would have taken some more photos if I had noticed that. Um, but yeah, just driving out of Romsey, it's at, um, it's only a meter or so high off the ground. Yeah, so oh, that's like beautiful. a settling frost yeah. that uh, didn't yeah. quite make it. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that that, but there wasn't any real. Uh, can't see mist. Yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah, because we're near the river, I suppose. There's always that mist coming off the river, at, at, yeah. you oh, know, especially beautiful. at this time of year. Yeah, no, it is really nice. Um, so, who's had rain? Put your hands up. <gasps> Woo-hoo! Yes, yeah. my tank got refilled. Yes. Very, very happy. Yep. You're yeah. in uh, Ringwood? Ringwood. Yeah, Ringwood. so you usually get yeah, a good amount of rain in yeah. Ringwood, don't you, when, yeah. when it actually rains? When it does come through, yeah. yeah. Well, and what and the city gets, we get. Yeah, and it's interesting, isn't it? It doesn't matter how vigilant you are about watering your plants they just want that rain yeah there's yeah. nothing there's nothing, nothing that does like it the ground was yeah. t- the ground had turned to powder it was just yeah. so dry and like underneath yeah my sugarcane mulch and veggie garden it was just powder yeah but even the potted plants you know that get as much water as they want 
they look so much more beautiful after a couple yeah. of days' rain. On yeah, yeah. yeah. Just yeah. And bringing uh, that nitrogen through that's right. through the air. Yeah. I have yeah. I have a pot of um, thyme herb, and it just it it was a bit of collateral damage from summer, and I thought I'd killed it. <laughs> and uh, I looked at it earlier on this week after a bit of rain, and it's all started to reshoot again. The the plant had gone crispy and dried up right. and it started to reshoot again so just with a bit of rain. Yeah. yeah. Oh, what, yeah. what was it? Time. Oh, time. Yeah. Goodness. Time heals all wounds. Gosh, you wouldn't <laughs> expect time to uh, struggle, would you? Oh, I, well, I, this, is in a, this one's in a terracotta pot. It dries out quite quickly because it's a pretty vigorous plant mm. and it dries out all the time. I water it and it perks back up again and it's fine. But, um, but this summer, I just, I just was one of the things I, I thought, I just can't keep watering this. Mm. You know, it, it's easy to source time so um i just stopped watering it but it's perked back up again so here we go mm, be mm. on the chip roast chicken tonight actually one of the things i learned from evan and for those who don't know evan clucas is my boss at karanga native nursery and um he was talking to me about um because in in the nursery i mean we water on those extremely hot days but you just give them a, a really sort of bit of almost a light misting and he was saying that what can happen because I was lamenting the uh, death of quite a few of my potted natives <laughs> and he was saying what what we can do is we can overwater the plant because during those really hot days they're not necessarily transpiring so they're not taking up that water so they're essentially sitting in a pot of water yeah. the roots rot and then they just can't hope can't cope with any other stresses at all and and keel over that's interesting. Um, yeah, the yeah. extremes. Well, I, I actually didn't haven't had that much rain. Um, there was enough uh, water in our tank, in my tank, to have one shower and about uh, fifteen litres of drinking water. And then it's uh, I noticed this morning it had run out again. Oh no! <laughs> so, um, and the forests up at Mount Macedon are, are bone dry. So I'm looking at uh, you know people on Facebook posting beautiful pictures of fungi from um, Mount Borbor and and the Danny Nongs, and I've gone out to the forest up at Mount Macedon, and it's still bone dry, and, and yeah. yeah. <laughs> so re- really looking forward to some decent rain. Um, it, it, the forest recovers really quickly. Um, but I've also noticed uh, uh, some of the rocky outcrops around the top of Mount Macedon, even some of the older gum trees have, di- have died mm. this, this summer, which obviously they don't do that uh, every year, but... Mm. Uh, um, I think the last time that happened was about 2008. Mm. So I, th- so I think last summer was worse. Well, it was certainly the Dandenongs last summer was worse because the tree ferns were all drooping Yeah, last well, we, summer. We, yeah, the Illyria and uh, uh, not so much the tree ferns, but a lot of the natives in the in the valleys yeah. um, and south-facing valleys were, yeah. were drooping this year. Yeah, yeah, see, that hasn't happened for us. Yeah. yeah, yeah. no, it must have been a bit... It was good up till about Christmas and then it wasn't yeah. so good <laughs> and hasn't been since. So, Greg, you are a bit of a um, fungi expert. So what sort of signs do you look for? Like when you're heading out into the uh, the forests around you, do you, are there some early signs that you can see where you think, yep, there's going to be something special out there today? Or yeah, some, Sometimes. Uh, the best ones are the unexpected ones, though. Mm-hmm. So when you're not expecting to find something, and especially if it's something you've never seen before too. Um, so it's mainly native ones that I like to, to go out searching for. Um, and yeah, the first good signs when it's rained. Yeah. So uh, this afternoon I'm going out with a friend. Um, not sure where we're headed yet, um, but yeah, basically looking for somewhere that's had decent rainfall. Yeah. Um, and 
you're guaranteed once you get that rainfall, you're probably going to find something. Mm. You, you always find something anyway, even if it's something old and dried out. Mm. Um, but, uh, yeah, once you get some decent rainfall about this time of the year, uh, you can pretty much go out anywhere and find something interesting. I've noticed that some of the gardens that are working up at Mount Macedon that irrigate, you can see the mushrooms trying to come through the, the lawns, so the introduced species. You know, the, the conditions are right. It just um, The native ones just need that rainfall because they don't have sprinklers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, and it's interesting you talk about native fungi because I've actually never <coughs> thought of uh, native fungi versus weedy fungi. Do we have some uh, or a lot of uh, the, exotic the, fungi that's yeah, yeah. so, naturalised? So the most common ones that you probably think of are often introduced ones and they're mycorrhizal, so they're companion uh, plant, uh, they're uh, symbiotic with mm-hmm. trees mm-hmm. and the root systems of trees like the conifers you have the Amanita muscaria mm-hmm. the, the red uh, uh, toadstool with the white oh, yeah. spots yeah. so that's um, symbiotic with a lot of conifers mm-hmm. um, and uh, one that's sort of causing a bit of a problem uh, is a, a wood rotting fungus from Madagascar called uh, Flavolasia. Mm-hmm. It's a, look like, they look like little orange ping pong bats. They're really tiny things. They're only about that big. Yeah. Uh, about a centimetre across, I think. Um, luckily, I haven't seen them up at Mount Macedon, but apparently they're sort of taking over um, habitat that that native fungi would often uh, would usually uh, take, yeah. and they're doing much better than a lot of the native stuff. So they're, mm. once they're introduced into an area, there's not really a lot you can do about stopping them, and they um, sort of, uh, you know, misplace a lot of the native species that usually uh, eat that wood um, yeah. and break it down. They're, they're quite pretty. They're interesting little fungi, but mm. when you see it, you, so, you, you sort of they're go, oh, wow, them. I haven't seen one of these, but then you go, oh, I'd I don't yeah. want to be anywhere near it because I'm going to carry it back to, you know, my part of the woods. Yeah, yeah. Um, and you get stuck onto your shoes, I suppose. Yeah, and there's not really much. I mean, there's certain things you can do to lower the risk, but, mm. but the spores are pretty small and there's billions of them. So yeah. um, <laughs> yeah. uh, it's just one of those things, I guess, once it's introduced to an a, um, ecosystem, that's it. It's, it's in there. Yeah. Um, and, it's and, and I've noticed that it's actually going all around the world too because I've uh, seen people post pictures of them from all over the world going, oh, what's this thing? And it's like, oh, it's there too. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so that, that one is, that's one of the f- ones that's really sort of creating a, a problem for the native ones, I okay. guess, yeah. Well, the native fungi symbiotic? I mean, do, do, do tree species have a specific fungi? Yeah, yeah. so they're not all symbiotic. There's, yeah. uh, there's ones that, are, that uh, form symbiotic relationships, yep. the mycorrhizal ones, mm-hmm. and then there's... Uh, other types of fungi that'll eat dead wood and yep. and break things down and compost stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, there's parasitic fungi that'll attack other fungi or insects, like yep. the cordyceps uh, fungi, which uh, zombifies insects and mm. makes them do stuff and then kills them and eats them, <laughs> and then grows a, a, a fungal fruiting body out of their head or something. Oh, they're, that's they're so quite cool. bizarre. <laughs> um, and then the slime molds, which sort of do. Uh, they're weird. They're almost intelligent little creatures that uh, do all sorts of weird things. Um, 
there's lots of scientific studies on slime moulds that are really interesting as well. Yeah. Yeah. So much we don't know, isn't there? I mean, yeah. even things like the um, the the Epacris, you know, that they have that association with a particular right. Oh, is it a fungi or a bacteria now? No, it's it's a mycorrhizal yeah, association. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Last time I heard. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, which is yeah one of the reasons why it can be hard to establish in the garden setting. Yeah, because so I often say when you do, if you propagate it when you're growing it, make sure you um, put in if you bought it in a pot, make sure as much of that soil from the pot mix. goes into yeah. the mm. into the ground, into so the hole as possible. The, the yeah. Yeah. So is it evident yeah. in the pots? You know, no. Is the potting mix no. white? No. 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 It's, some of the mycorrhizal ones are, are literally, you know, like you say, if, if the if the fungi isn't there, the yeah. plant's not going to be there either. Cause, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so so the, the relationship they have is that... Um, the mycelium from the fungi can penetrate into rocks and get more access to water and nutrients than, yeah. the, than the roots of the plant can. And in return, they get the sugars from photosynthesis uh, from the plant. Um, so, you know, the fungi can get better access to water and yeah. get into much smaller places than the root can. Um, and they get rewarded, you know, w- with the sugars. Yeah. Um, so, th- and they're basically like a sleeve over each other. You right. know, they're, they're not, it's not... Uh, you know the fungi's here and the plants here. They're, yeah. they're together. Yeah, together. and some of them actually into like the the fungi penetrates into the cells as well. That's right. Yeah. Uh, so it's quite a close relationship. Yeah. Uh, evolved. It's yeah. it's an evolved relationship. I have a European hornbeam bonsai which I have had for thirty years, and prior to that, it belonged to someone else, and I have never seen mycorrhiza in it. Last year, I put it into a pumice mix, and when I repotted it, the the potting mix was just white with mycorrhiza mm. right. right through it. So it must have been there. It, it the would have whole been. Time. But what the one you've seen might be a, a, a one of the um, saprophytic ones that breaks down the potting mix. So you've put new potting mix in there, which mm. has got a fungi that's breaking down the pine bark or whatever's in the potting mix. And that's the, the mycelial mass that you've seen is actually from the, the one breaking down the um, potting mix right. rather than the one that's actually a symbiotic with the tree. No, because it was across the horn beams. Okay. The, the um, American one had it as well. Yeah. Yeah. There's, and there's more than one. Uh, so I think the, the mycorrhizal ones can grow fairly closely to the saprophytic ones right so, so yeah. as i say that if you dig up underneath a pine tree you often see the yellowy uh mass of the yep. of the amanitas yep. I'm, I'm, I'm assuming it's the amanitas it's sort of a yellowy yeah, powdery sort of mm. foamy sort of feeling Foam, to, yeah. the, to the soil um but i don't think they all they're not all like that like oh. some of them you just can't you know they they uh, if the conditions are right they'll send up a fruiting body but yep. um i'm not sure that you see much of them otherwise yeah um but some of the uh, fungi that actually breaks down woody matter and stuff can be quite visible if you dig what they're eating up. Yeah. Um, um, so it, it could be a combination of them yeah. or something. Yeah, I'm not really sure. Oh, yeah, but my suspicion is that it's something to do with the pumice because in the, in the pine bonsai, once I transferred them into pumice, you could actually see the mycorrhiza on the surface of the pot. Yeah, right. Which I've never known. Is it all the before. same batch of pumice? Yeah. Yeah, I yeah. reckon you've got something in on that. Yeah, I reckon, I reckon there's something species in the mix. that came in with that. Right. Yeah. 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 Um, there, there's a there's a great one you get in potting mix sometimes, and they're really pretty little yellow caps. And yeah. I can't remember the name of it. It's uh, um, 
uh, it, it, but it's a it's a small yellow fungus, and they come up this really bright golden yellow and yeah. fade fairly quickly and self digest almost. Um, but oh. at certain times of the year, yeah, especially on the the Facebook groups, the fungi yeah. Facebook groups, there's like, what's this? What's this? And yeah. it's all it's all the same uh, one coming so up it in people's comes in body the mix. Bark. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And th- and that's a, a, a composter. That's one of the ones eating okay. the pine bark and, yeah. and things in the potting mix. So that's one way how fungal spores get spread, isn't it? I mean, yeah. you think that the one you're talking about from Madagascar, you think how how did that get to Australia? How did that yep. get to you know Europe or whatever? Yeah, potting mixes. Yep. Our feet. In terms of us not being able to bring weeds back in or, or plants of, of any nature, for that matter, I mean, who, how can we police bringing back spores of yeah. uh, fungi? You it's can't. completely impossible. It's everywhere. Yeah. yeah. So <laughs> it's pretty much everywhere. Right. So. It's really hard. Um, the best you can do is, you know, spray your shoes with a disinfectant if you've been out walking in the bush. Yeah. You know, that's and, and that'll slow it down, but... Yeah. but uh, it's going to be in your clothes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, if you sneeze, the chances are still there. Yeah, um, and and you know, there's, I mean, nature will sort itself out eventually, and they'll, you know, correct the balance. But yeah, yeah it's it's the damage that we do in the meantime, I guess, and and it's all human related too, of course. Yeah. I mean, there yeah. wouldn't be um, Madagascan. Uh, fungi in Australia if it yeah. wasn't for humans carting it around everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe in 50 million years once yeah, it flows yeah. over the ocean. That's right. <laughs> yeah, and, for, and for non-fungi people, I mean, it's hard enough um, recognising a few species of fungi, let alone, mm. you know, exotic ones as well. Yeah. But I, I, it's, I think it'll be, get more into gardening because especially with native gardens, um, it's quite an important, you know, that mycorrhizal relationships we're talking about mm. are fairly important for a lot of those plants mm. and for all plants too, same with yeah. the conifers. And, Absolutely. Um, yeah. Uh, and I know from working in some of the gardens over the years, if, you know, some of the, sometimes you'll, you'll get, uh, some of the owners will see a, a mushroom pop up and it's straight away a bad thing. Yeah. And... Most of the time, nearly all the time, it isn't. It's just something yeah. that's coming up. It's sometimes mm. it's a good thing. Yeah. Sometimes it's just a thing. Yeah. And very rarely it's a bad thing. And it's usually only a bad thing because the tree's unhealthy anyway mm. or mm. Um, even the really bad honey fungus, uh, the armillarias that rot the trees out, um, usually get a foothold on that tree because of a, a, an injury or it's ill anyway. So... Um, mm. Yeah, they're, they're good things to have around, and mm. they're like bulbs. They just sort of pop up, and you get these beautiful little things that you can look at. Um, they're very ephemeral, and they're there, and then they're gone. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, I find them quite in- intriguing and and, um, and beautiful, too, in, in, in a lot of ways, or, or yeah, odd like Aaron. Most of the time, Aaron. they don't hurt. Yeah, yeah. Uh, or they can be really them? odd. I, I've, tried, <laughs> I've tried the ghost fungus. Yeah. Um, it doesn't like uh, it doesn't seem to pop up at Mount Macedon very often, so it's the one that glows in the dark. Mm-hmm. Um, so I've seen it a couple of times up the mount, but not um, not like I've seen it elsewhere. And a friend collected; they had one pop up in their on their tree in their yard. Um, so they collected the mushrooms for me, and I tried to inoculate a dead uh, uh, eucalyptus on my property yeah so i could have my own patch of ghost fungus but <laughs> i haven't had any luck yet I'll, uh, yeah. I'll, might, might, might be waiting for the right conditions well it could be and yeah. and the, hopefully the mycelium's all through the tree now and and is eating the old dead eucalyptus tree but um so that that would be exciting if that if that popped up but other than that it's i don't need to i can go i've got uh, the forests of mount Masson and i can venture out basically any time i like yeah. and 
it's amazing what I find up there. It's I'm truly amazed. I've probably photographed well over 300 species uh, over five or six years. Yeah. Um, probably closer to 400 now. So, um, yeah, and. Just, it's still amazed when you step over a log in the forest uh, in a fern gully and there's this bright red thing that you've never seen before yeah, or something cool. weird. Yeah, um, yeah. And yeah. you take tours, do you? Uh, in the, in the, at the right time of the year. So yeah. over the cooler months, once the fungi start popping up, um, I do little uh, guided tours through the forest for three or four hours. Yeah, how um, do you let sometimes people know at night. when you're taking a tour? Um, the best ways is there's... If you're on, the best way is on Facebook. Mm -hmm. There's a a group called Masson Ranges Fungi Flora and Fauna Mm -hmm. uh, that I started. And I usually advertise on there when I'm doing walking tours and things like that. Or my own personal Facebook page, which is open. Anyone can look at that. Um, And the Instagram, my little Instagram account. So your Instagram's uh, Longanomus, yeah? At Longanomus, yeah. 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 And, and your Facebook? Uh, Greg Boulderston. Greg Boulderston. Yeah. And, yeah, and the Masson Rangers Fungi Flora and Fauna group. Is, it's probably the best one if you're on Facebook because yeah. you get to see everyone else's photos up there too. And, um, yeah, when fungi photos start popping up there, you know the fungi are out. Yeah. And then, because um, there's lots of places up at Mount Masson and the Danny Nongs and, mm-hmm. um, uh, you know, pretty much anywhere that's native habitat will be producing fungi when the conditions are right mm. and if you go somewhere that's like a cool climate rainforest you're probably going to find a lot more yeah um yeah. and more colorful things too the, the colors are just it still amazes me some of the colors mm-hmm. that pop up in off, off a dead tree stump yeah they're surreal aren't they yeah yeah, yeah. especially yeah. the bright blue the, the tonal bright blue yeah that's a mycena interrupter yeah. the little yeah. pixies parasols they're, they're <laughs> just um yeah, just amazing, some of, some of the colours you find. I was watching A Bug's Life the other day, <laughs> the, the children's Pixar movie, yep. and the, one of the ant was using that, what did you say, the blue? Oh, the Mycena. The Mycena, yeah, because yep, it's quite luminescent. Yep. It was using it as a light guide when, like, a, a bird was, was oh, okay. coming in to guide it in. I didn't know that. <laughs> yeah, I was like, oh, that's that blue fungi. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, and that's an Australian native too. There's, um, and it, it's interesting, there's uh, someone... Um, I think it's on Instagram who posts photos from South America and because of that Gondwana land uh, relationship with Australia, yep. a lot of the fungi are almost identical but they're completely different species. Really? So they're still close enough to look almost the same yep. Yep. but they've been separated for long enough to actually be a, a different... They've uh, speciated. Yeah. So you get these blue mycenas in South America that look like mycena interrupter yep. but they're just slightly different and they're a different species, yeah, and and lots of others too, yeah. It's, re- mm. it's really quite interesting. We will come back to this discussion because yes. it, is, it is terrific. Um, I need to get to some community announcements. Uh, so there's a couple on this weekend. There's not a huge amount, so we're obviously starting to slow down a bit on the, on the open garden front. Uh, so this weekend we've got um, the Eclectic Garden, which is the home garden of horticulturalist Michelle Oliphant. Uh, with many years' experience as a professional gardener, including 12 years working at the Royal Botanic Gardens in Melbourne, Michelle has the plant knowledge to create whatever style of garden she likes. The Eclectic Garden is Michelle's personal creation, a garden where she can experiment with plants and let her imagine rate, imagination run free. Uh, 
Uh, it's on a corner block and the garden embraces you right from the curb with its textural nature strip planting. Uh, even the power pole is cloaked in Boston ivy. Oh, I'm sure the council's happy about that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, a leaning cabbage tree welcomes you up the garden path and beneath the arching forms of Japanese maples. Uh, the front fences are largely obsolete here with layers of trees and shrubs doing all the screening work. Overall, the garden has an informal feel with meandering paths and quirky garden art, metal pieces and pots used as highlights. Virtually every space has been used horizontally and vertically with a rich diversity of foliage plants and perennials. Uh, sounds really good. So the eclectic garden uh, is on, open today from 10am till 4.30pm. Um, it's at 4 Lynette Street in Nunawadding. So that's Lynette, L-Y-N-E-T-T-E. Uh, entry is $8, children under 18 free. Uh, students are $5.00. And uh, Michelle will be giving talks about the garden at 11 a.m., 1 p.m. and 3 p.m. And artist Joe Reitz will be painting in the garden, um, yes, as well. So that's, um, that's Michelle's garden, Michelle Oliphant's garden. Uh, it sounds like it would be a lovely one to visit. Um, always good to get really uh, great tips on uh, plant combinations, I think, when you visit yep. uh, designer gardens. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, another garden that's open this weekend, or today I should say, um, is a Hyatt garden uh, that has been uh, created, designed and created by uh, landscape designer Stephen Reed. Uh, when he was first approached to create the Hyatt garden for his clients, he was greeted by a blank canvas and the task of designing a garden to surround a brand new house on a cleared block. Mm, every uh, designer's dream, I would imagine. Um, with few visual clues apart from the neighbour's pencil pines and an enormous willow myrtle, Stephen used his, this borrowed landscape to create the sense of a much larger garden. The owners were clear that they wanted to include productive plants such as olives and figs. The resulting garden is relaxed and tranquil with productive elements and pencil pines used in a random pattern in the back garden to echo the neighbour's trees. Uh, a lone olive indicates the direction you should take to explore the garden. Uh, to the north side of the property, a lush and productive kitchen garden is squeezed into the narrow space where the northerly aspect provides good sunlight to grow fruit trees, herbs and vegetables. Uh, in the west-facing rare garden, olive trees planted within paving provide shelter from the afternoon sun and a screen from neighbouring houses. The surrounding generous soft plantings include a perennial meadow, grasses and flowering shrubs. The perennials are allowed to spill into the open spaces, blurring edges and creating warm and inviting places to sit and relax. That also sounds nice. Mm. Uh, so the Hyatt Garden is at 7 Barnett Street, B-A-R-N-E-T, in Hyatt. Uh, open from 10 till 4.30 today. Uh, again, entry is $8, children under 18 free and students are $5.00 and Stephen will be in the garden to chat to visitors all weekend. So that's excellent. Uh, so for next weekend, um, historic Mount Macedon Hill Station Garden, ah, Danaira, is opening to the public for the whole weekend. It's a beautiful garden, I have been there. Um, come along and experience the luminous autumn colours when it opens. 
Uh, established in 1872, Danira's English style garden is simply starting in autumn. It comes complete with a secret garden, obviously not so secret now, um, <laughs> bordered by high holly hedges and there is so much more to explore and enjoy. Uh, 16 acres of gardens are considered to be of outstanding cultural significance by the National Trust of Australia, with several trees listed on the Register of Significant Trees of Victoria. The entire property has remained intact after surviving the devastating bushfires in 1983. Um, and yes, so the, the approach to Dunera is via a majestic driveway flanked by 91 Dutch elm trees. Um, it's, a, it's a stunning driveway too. It's probably one of the best, yeah. yeah. Um, beyond expansive lawns surround the historic home and with the backdrop of more than 150 different varieties of rhododendrons together with azaleas, dogwoods and other cool climate plants, the garden captures the imagination in a special way. Um, there's a staggering variety of exotic trees and shrubs, um, or orchards of stone fruit and groves of hazelnut and chestnut to the rear of the property where of course there are llamas I think every country oh. property likes to have their llamas I thought you were going to say truffles maybe them too maybe the llamas can find them um, so Danira Garden uh, is at Officer Lane Mount Massenden uh, open on next Saturday the 13th, Sunday the 14th from 10am to 4.30pm. Entry is $10 and children under 18 free. Uh, also next weekend, so next Sunday, um, the Geelong Botanic Gardens uh, is holding a themed guided walk uh, titled The First Australians. Aboriginal people have lived on the continent for 60,000 years depending on native plants and animals for all necessities and managing the limited resources very well. Learn about the ways they used plants for food, fibre, medicine, weapons, transport, musical instruments and religious ceremonies. Uh, meet your guide at the Geelong Botanic Gardens front steps. So that's next Sunday at 2pm and the cost is a gold coin donation. Uh, so that's all the announcements, but I um, do want to mention that I was um, chatting with someone from Open Gardens Victoria and they are looking for uh, more smaller gardens, especially sort of the inner urban gardens where people can come along and, and get some fabulous ideas. So you might not have a designer garden, but you might be well into gardening and have included a productive garden as well as nice combinations of um, perennials or natives or whatever. Um, so if you've got a garden that you think would be um, uh, other people could learn from and be interested in, then please feel free to get in touch with Open Gardens Victoria. They'd love to hear from you. They would. They would, yes. So, I mean, and we, we can all get tips and tricks. It doesn't matter what garden we use, doesn't it? You yeah. have to be a lot more uh, conscious about how you're using your space in a small garden too. So I think uh, some of the bigger gardens, you go, let's do this, and you've got the space to do it. But in a yeah. small garden, you really have to think about how Absolutely. you're going to use your space. Yeah. So yeah. It's, it's actually... Not a lot more thought's gone into them, but... Uh, more skill. More skill yeah. about... Yeah. Uh, Creativity. Uh, cre yeah. And, yeah. 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 So so you get uh, a lot of... And, you know, uh, a lot more people have smaller gardens than bigger ones, so if you want good ideas about what you're going to do at home, 
the That's smaller right. gardens are actually yeah. probably yeah. often better to look at. That's right. Uh, you are listening to the 3CR Gardening Show. I'm A.B. Bishop, and with me in the studio are Greg Balderston, Chloe Foster, and Craig Wilson. So uh, we'd like to invite listeners to uh, give us a call if you've got a question or a query or a comment or you've seen some incredible fungi and you're desperate for uh, Greg to ID <laughs> it. Um, please give us a call on 9419 Okay, so... Um, should we get to some plants, Craig? Maybe some of yours. I guess uh, it wouldn't be me if I didn't bring in some cyclamen. <laughs> um, and the season's sort of moving into full swing now. Mm. With the uh, the purple essence is just about finished, but they've still got quite a few flowers on them. Graycombs flowering, hydrofoliums in full swing, and now Africanum's coming in. And it's Africanum that I bought in today. Um, and in amongst Almost all the large populations of hydrofolium and the Dandenongs that I've seen, there's always a couple of Africanums scattered in amongst them. Um, the, the, it's, once, you, once you know the difference, it's easy to pick it. The flowers and the leaves on Africanum come straight from the top of the corm, whereas the hydrofoliums will spread out. And then as the, um, as the, plant, uh, the leaves develop, they're much bigger and much fleshier than hydrofolium. And, and it also develops some beautiful leaf patterns. It's an interesting one. Won't tolerate frost and likes to be dry. Um, and really, I don't think not seen much commercially Africanum for I, some reason. I shifted some of it Forest Glade the other day. I was digging up some bulbs when I was yeah. uh, working. And now that you've said that, I think they were the Africanum and not the Hedrophilia. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they were definitely, as you were describing it, I'm thinking, oh, that's what those... And, and the colours were a little bit different. That's right, usually the Hedrophilum are... Pink or white, but yeah. these had slightly different coloured yeah, uh, flowers. Yeah, a little, a little bit deeper pink. I've not seen white Africanum. It probably exists. Yeah, but, but the the flowers are a little bit pink, and definitely they just come straight up. So you get quite a small clump. Mm. Whereas the hydrofoliums will spread right out. Yeah. What's yeah. the common one? Hydrofolium. It is hydrofolium, isn't it? Yeah. Well, when you say common, do you mean? Well, I guess the one that persicum. a lot of gardeners. Hydrofolium. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Persicum, Persicum's Persicum's the hybridised, yeah. the hybridised one. That's yeah. the florist cyclamen. Yep. But in fact, the species Persicum is superb. <coughs> yeah, well, I nearly bought a pot of it down because I've bought a pot of Graycom down that you may as well talk about, Craig, because you yeah. know more about them than I do. Um, but as a foliage plant too, so you get the, the the flowers, especially the autumn flowering ones, after a hot summer, there's these beautiful patches of pink pop up or white. Um, but when the foliage starts to come up, They've got that foliage all winter. This and is persicum. Oh, or any, any of the cyclamens oh, over absolutely. winter. The, the foliage is probably their main thing. Yeah. The flowers are a little bonus at whatever, you know, the season, wherever they come up. Um, but the foliage on them, uh, this graecum here, um, the pot that I bought in is, um, yeah, the foliage is beautiful. On, uh, uh, great pot plants. And yeah. Yeah, good to naturalise yeah, as well. It's quite mottled, the foliage, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, and, and it's got darker the green splotches. And, and the burgundy undersides burgundy to the leaves, yeah. yeah. And, and the, those flowers sitting above the foliage, so yep. you can actually yeah, appreciate it's a bit them. more of an open plant as well. The, you know, the standard cyclamens that you get in a, in a nursery, it's really, really dense foliage and the flowers pop up out yeah, the middle. Yeah. Those ones are a little bit... The flowers are spread <coughs> throughout the, that pot there and the, the habit of the, the foliage there is a bit more open. 
as well. It's a bit nicer. It's not so I, in I your face. I probably need to pot it up too because I, I, I <laughs> sewed these in here in 2012. Oh, so <laughs> oh, it's right. full of bulbs, is it? Yeah, yeah. Right, lots of them in there. One. It's okay. not just one column. Yeah. How big are the seeds of a cyclamen? Are they like dust? No. no. Yeah, no? no, pinhead. Yeah. Oh, really? Yeah. yeah. So that, and they're, they're something that you need to sew fairly quickly after yep. they uh, set, mm-hmm. um, and they've often got sticky coatings on most of them. I, yeah. I think most of them sweet don't they? and sticky. Yeah. yeah so, so do they sit on the flower head? Basically, it's like a little uh, ping pong ball. Yeah, they, they, <laughs> the, the flowers finish and then it coils up like that, and the seeds the seed sits right on top of the corm. All coiled up. Oh mm. wow! Yeah, and then so when, when they're they sort they of split, easy to collect the seeds, or do you have you've to? You've got to be onto it. It's tiny. Yeah, okay. You've got to be onto it. So it's like a ping pong ball that's full of seeds. Yeah. And then when they're ready to go, the ping pong ball not explodes, but it, it pops open. Yep. And if you've got little ants around, they love the the sweet sticky coating on it. Right. And then you'll find cyclamens popping up in cracks in bricks and yeah, wherever everywhere. they cut yep. them around. Yeah. So the ants um, have to disperse them. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So basically, you if you go around and just um, so it's like a little it's a little ball wrapped up in a spring coil. Yep. And you just sort of pinch them a little bit, and if they're sort of softish, yeah. and the, and the coil starts to elongate and stretch back yeah. out. Um, that's they're pretty much ready, when, ready to go. Yeah, when you when you you just squeeze them gently, and if if the capsule splits, yeah, then they're ready. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and if you miss out, it can be just a matter of a day or two, yeah, and they're all gone. Yeah, I know yeah. some people when they're collecting seeds have tiny little you know mesh bags that they put over the seed flowers because coriers are very hard. The seeds of coriers yeah. are very hard yeah. to collect. So I mean that's something you could do with the cyclamens as well if people wanted to. Yeah, yeah, collect yeah. the seeds. But the, the spring function on them is really interesting. Yeah, like that Craig says, cool. at once the once the flower's been um, pollinated, and it's finished, it all at the 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 leaf the flower stalk that it's on uh, wraps up like a spring coil mm-hmm. and back down on top of the bulb. So if you look at them when all the flowers have been pollinated. Um, if you spread the leaves apart, there's yeah. all these little springs stuck yeah. to the top of the bulb. We, we should. Have you, any of you guys got a photo? We should send it to Liz and at some point during the week. Or yeah, something. I don't know that I have got a so photo. It's not really seed season. Yeah, yeah. yeah. sort of a bit, a bit later. But and then, and then, the, yeah. the so the seed pods get larger and larger. So they're about the size of a small marble or a big ball right. bearing. Yeah. And then when the seeds are ripe, that coil elongates again and pushes the seed away from the main bulb. So it actually serves a function. It's a yeah. function uh, thing to get the seeds away from the mother bulb. And if, if you have them in your garden for many years, you find the corms stacked up on top of each other. Mm. Yeah. 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 That's incredible. That is yeah. so yeah, cool. That, I've got a, uh, a large pot um, in the shade house and despite me the cyclamen dies down and comes back every year and I, so I really appreciate it because I don't do anything to it but I'm <laughs> going to be looking at my cyclamen with new eyes now yeah. after they finish flowering. Well the ones that do germinate easily from seed naturalise beautifully if you look at some of the older gardens um, especially and, and I know Craig's garden's got quite a few cyclamen through it, yeah. uh, in the lawn even. That's right. <laughs> and I've started to find that too at home. Yeah. There's a there's a patch where I used to um, uh, pot up my bulb pots, and I must have had a um, the cyclamens had seeded down in the pots, and yeah. I was repotting. So it's, I've spread sort of potting mix around on the grass, right. and you walk through there now, and there's probably 15 or 20 cyclamens that just pop up through oh, the lawn. Oh, that looks <laughs> nice. <laughs> so yeah, yeah. Um, that's hydrophilium. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. yeah. I have comb through the lawn too. 
yeah. A little winter one. Yeah, yeah not, not yeah. I don't think everyone has, has that. Yeah. <laughs> so you guys obviously don't have rabbits? Uh, I do actually do now, you? yeah. And they don't eat them? Uh, I think there's enough. Uh, I think they're enough busy eating other rare things. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Not the weeds, unfortunately. No. All right, let's get to a couple of our callers. Let's go to Margo. Hi, Margo in Kyneton. Hello, AB and Greg. Hi, Margo. How are Hello. you? <laughs> Just to let you know that today we've got the Kyneton Horticultural Autumn Flower Show on. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's lots of things to see. And we've got a lot of plants that we've propagated. And they're all around the $5 mark and below. So, um, you know, pop up. It's a really nice day up here. And, um, you know, one of the old-fashioned horticultural shows. There's mm-hmm. not that many around now. <laughs> no, so. there's not too many left now. Uh, Margot helped with our Mount Macedon one a few weeks ago, and, and they've got the, uh, the Kyneton one on, on this weekend. And uh, it's not this week, but next I'm doing a talk for you guys too, Margot. On That's right. Yeah. We're involved. So I'm listening intently. I'll be quitting you again. That's <laughs> 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 no, wonderful. But, look, it's at the showgrounds in Kyneton, Watts Pavilion, and there's also um, a chicken, um, a poultry show as well. I love a good poultry show. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, you know, lots to do and see there. Yeah. So where, what's, what street are the showgrounds on, Margot? Mollison Street. Cool. And uh, I've got some entries in and Molly, uh, sorry, uh, Millie's got some entries in, which she's won, you know, prizes for, etc. So lots to see and lots to do. What, what have you got entries in? What, uh, what category? Uh, foliage. Okay, yeah. And um, Millie's got hers, of course, guess what, in the vegetable section. Oh, beautiful, (laughs) which is quite a feat in itself because she doesn't have a huge garden. No. But but it's certainly a very, very productive garden. Certainly is. So what time is the the show on today, Margaret? uh, Ten till four today. Yeah, and entry? Entry, four dollars, and you can get a lovely lunch, sandwiches and homemade slices for six dollars. Beautiful. Oh, I think I'll go up for the singers. <laughs> Chloe's not interested in coming to plant, just for the sandwiches. Look, it's just so quaint and old-fashioned. I love it. Kyneton so. is a beautiful town. It's great for a day trip up from Melbourne too. Yeah. So if yeah. anyone's looking for something to do... Yeah, one hour. Yeah. yeah that, that's there's a, there's a lot, there's a, there is a lot to do around Kyneton and, oh, and yeah. Mount Masson would end. Yeah. You know, uh, it's a pretty good area to go to, yeah. yeah. Indeed. All right, Margot, well, you All have right. a lovely day. No doubt it's going to be a, a very busy one for you. Yeah, a corker up here. Thank All you right. very much. Good on you, Margot. Bye. Bye. All right, and we will go to uh, Chris and Dingley. Good morning, Chris. Yes, good morning, everybody. Thanks. Look, I'm trying to raise seedlings. I've put them in seed-raising mix, but they haven't done much. They've germinated all right, but uh, not very... Uh, no growth. I've tried potting mix and with a bit of weak fertiliser. Again, good germina- germination, but no real movement. What can you suggest? What seeds what are, are you trying yeah. to grow? Oh, hollyhocks, carnations. I haven't had any trouble with cornflower because they've been so easy. But, yes, mainly uh, carnations, snapdragons and hollyhocks. Yeah, the dianthus or the carnations will be sitting a bit low at this time of the year. They'd really take off in the spring, I would have thought. Yeah. Well, that's snapdragons. That's sort of an autumn plant. Um, maybe if, no. I actually don't know, but I'm just thinking that they're sort of uh, flowering. A lot of them, autumn, yeah. A lot so of them are dropping been, off. Yeah, it would have been um, should have been sown a bit earlier, Chris. Where did you get this? The seeds aren't out of date, are they? No, they're all fresh. Uh, we've got a couple of years to go. But is potting mix better than seed raising mix to put them in? I don't want to be shipping 
from one point Have you to had other. any germination? Oh, yeah, plenty of germination, but they're just not moving. Yeah, oh, I would have thought that's seasonal. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's the time of year when all that sort of thing's starting to go down. Unless you've got a glass house, you know. Yeah. Have you got uh, a glass house with heated beds or anything? No, but it's been pretty warm. Uh, yeah, I think it's funny, Chris, because I'm really... You'll notice that at, at certain times of year, plants may well germinate, but as Craig was saying, they just don't have that vigour. They really don't want to grow. But come, if you plant them at the right time in spring, they will mm, literally yeah. jump mm. out of the That's pot. That's right. It, it's it really, really it's not so much to do with warmth, but daylight yeah. hours. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Oh, and just one other quick question. I've got a hessian bag. I want to put manure in it and put it into a bucket to get that, uh, you know, sort of soup type thing for fertilisers. But yeah. The buckets aren't big enough because the hessian bags are quite big. Any suggestions? There's any 44-gallon drums lying around? Or use, well, a, smaller, a, use a smaller amount of uh, manure in the hessian bag? The hessian bag just goes to the bottom of the bucket. Well, the, the rubbish bins from the hardware store, yeah, you can get a, a, like a, an old-fashioned dustbin yeah. or something yeah. like that. Yeah. Your bath? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if you don't use your bath very often. Um, with, your, yeah. with your question on potting mix or seed raising mix, I, I use potting mix. I never bother buying commercial seed raising mix, and but I always use a really light dressing of some sort of gravel on top right. of the seeds. Do you sieve the potting mix? Do you no. get the finer stuff? No. I, I do with bulbs, but I, I'm really fussy and... Quite pedantic. Yeah, so I'll yeah, sieve I'll potting mix yeah. and often uh, sieve um, uh, scoria in yeah. through it so it's a bit sandier and then use the different grades. I, I put all the potting mix goes back in the same pot, it just goes in in layers yeah. in order. Yeah, okay. so, and it depends on the type of bulb because I, um, uh, some of the things like poppies and things need da- uh, light on the, bo- on the seeds to germinate right. so you can't bury them yep. or foxgloves yep. or. Um, and then other things you need to put down a little bit deeper. Than yeah, that and, and it, it, often it depends on the size of the seed. Yep. You yep. find to find the seed that's like dust doesn't need much of a covering at yep. all. Yeah. And anything that's a bit bigger goes mm. down. Goes yeah. down a bit yeah. deeper. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Thanks a lot. Good on, good on you, Chris. Thanks. Bye for now. Yeah. I mean that that is so true though with uh, growing plants at the right time, isn't it? And a lot of seed packets, they do suggest the times where it's best to grow them. But yeah. yeah. I mean, I mean, even things like things that we know, that basil, for example, that and beans that have got those, you know, they're extremely seasonal plants. Yeah. And, yeah, grow them out of season and they just really don't want to grow. Mm. Mm. I, mean, I tend just to sow seed when it's ripe here. Yeah, so it's, a, it's an it's easy a, way to do it, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, so <laughs> if you're looking at, say, helianthemum, and, you know, they're, they've just finished flowering and they're setting seed now, well, that's when I'd buy the seed yep. and sow it. Yep. Yeah. And, and uh, something to also keep in mind is where the plant comes from in the wild. That's right. Uh, what sort of conditions they have. So Absolutely. a lot of, uh, as yeah. I've always found that handy with bulbs, species bulbs. Yeah. If it comes from a really hot, dry place in South Africa, the, it's fairly similar conditions to what we have here, and it's not going to start germinating and growing in the middle of summer. It's yeah. going to wait for the autumn, yeah. winter, spring sort of time to do its thing. So, you, you yeah, you'd sow them uh, at the latest by autumn. Mm. And then um, hopefully the, the cold weather and the, the wet weather over winter will spring them into action and do, they'll do their thing when they want to do it. Because, mm. yeah, just give, give them, if you can give something that's uh, the same sort of... Um, 
uh, environment that it would have had in the wild, it's probably going to do its own thing when Absolutely. it's ready. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's an interesting question, though, and I think it's something that we've all sort of um, had trouble with from time to time because, you, as Chris was saying, it is warm, so there's no reason why mm. they shouldn't actually grow. But yeah. it's not temperature, I don't think. Yeah. I think it's, no, day, it's, it's, it's light. It's daylight it's sunlight hours. hours. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Now, Anne has called in um, and would like to know, she's got some spongy potatoes that are the correct colour and wants to know if they're still okay to eat. So they've just been in the pantry for a bit too long. Too long probably exactly. fine. Yeah, or, yeah, eat away. Mash yeah. them. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, just mash them. <laughs> I know people say you shouldn't eat green potatoes, but I'm sorry, I eat green potatoes yeah, and same. nothing happens. I've never so that's what's wrong with you. <laughs> one of the one of the things, <laughs> though, one of the many things. <laughs> Yeah, I'd agree. I've never had an issue. Yeah, so I don't know. Maybe if you just eat the the green skin or something, it's a problem. But One thing I have learned recently, having had to take my uh, chickens to the vet, is that uh, birds can't eat avocado. And oh. yeah. You feed them avocado. I do not feed them avocado. Yeah. I was going to say. Yeah. I don't <laughs> Habitat is selling very well <laughs> if you can afford yeah. to feed your chooks avocado. avocado. <laughs> yeah. No, they don't. But I, for the compost, I chuck the compost okay. out for them. And yeah. often there's uh, avocado peel and yeah. pip and whatnot. Yeah. And uh, I have since learned because when I was in the vet, um, the receptionist came in and she was talking to the vet saying, oh, um, a customer has rung up, she's got a parrot and the parrot's eaten avocado and uh, the vet was like, bring the parrot in and we need to clean its crop out and so I thought that was quite oh, interesting. Okay. Yeah. I'd never heard that. I learned another interesting thing recently. One of my friends is a vet and her dog came around and I said, oh, I've, um, and she said, oh, will the dog be fine in the garden? I said, yeah, that's fine. Like I've, I've just, It was just in springtime when I'd planted my veggies and I'd sprinkled out the snail bait and I said oh I've just sprinkled out snail bait but it's fine I used a pet friendly one she goes oh well that won't make any difference at all the there's still the same there's still the same chemical composition in the pet friendly ones as opposed to the regular snail bait and there's just something in it that it's got like a bitter a, it's yeah. meant to be a bitter taste yeah. for fine, the yeah. for the animal and I I had no idea I assumed that the pet friendly one was made up Non-toxic. You know, yeah. It was a non-toxic yeah. made up yeah. of something different, but it's still exactly the same. Yeah. So she ran out and grabbed the dog and put it inside. Yeah. Uh, I think the, the solution to slugs and snails is uh, plant more indigenous shrubs. <laughs> get those little birds in there to eat them. <laughs> yeah, well, that's true. that's true. I'll do that next time. You do that next I'll time. I'll do that next yeah. time. <laughs> but yeah, I didn't know that, so fun little fact. Yeah. Yeah. Um, bulbs. Let's talk about bulbs. Um, well, I, I've I bought... A few in. There's actually not that much in flower at the moment. The um, the bigger colchicums that I have have um, been and gone. A, a beautiful white one called uh, Speciosum album has mm-hmm. uh, just finished flowering in the last couple of days or so. But um, so they they have goblets that are you know uh, ten, fifteen, twenty centimeters tall. Sometimes with these beautiful uh, pure white goblets on them. They're most stunning colchicums. That's really big. Yeah, the one I had this year is probably the biggest I've flowered, and it's yeah. in a pot too. Okay. And they, they, the bigger colchicums especially don't really like being in pots, but yeah. it seems to like the pot it's in. Um, uh, but the, the only colchicums that I managed to pick last night were these two little species ones, which I've probably the reason I bought them down is to show how similar some of the colchicums are. There's really you can get about five different species and cover pretty much the whole range of autumn flowering colchicums. 
Um, these two I've bought into two different species, but they look for all the world the same. And <laughs> now I've completely forgotten which one was which. Um, well, they look like crocus to me, so yeah, <laughs> yeah. I'd have no chance. Well, the main difference between the crocus and the colchicum is that the crocuses are in the iris family, so they're sets of threes. Mm. They oh. have three outer petals, three yeah. inner petals, uh, three uh, stamens, and the pistils usually split into three at some point, mm-hmm. um, where colchicums are in six. So they're in their own little family, um, and they have uh, six. Uh, uh, the, yeah, so so they're they're in sixes. The the uh, stamens are uh, sets of six. That's probably the easiest way to do it. Um, so anyway, I was going to talk about those, but I've forgotten which ones they are because they look identical. What's, so, the di- what's meant to be the difference between the species? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> one's, one's got a tag that says one name and the other's got a tag that says another name. And, and the colours being, of those two flowers look slightly different. One looks slightly they do. One's darker. One's got a slightly diff- uh, darker coloured pedestal uh, yeah. on it as it goes down into the bulb. Um, they're really cute little things. But, um, yeah, after growing them for so many years and having a number of pots... Uh, at the moment, I've got about six pots, and they're all full of these little tiny colchicums that are gorgeous, yeah. but they look very similar to each other. Yeah. <laughs> One thing I've noticed about my colchicums at home is that the ones that are in full sun perform much better yeah, well, than the ones that are in shade. If you, if you think of where they come from, they're, they're, they come from you know around Mediterranean and Middle East. So you grow them quite, all out in the sun? I, 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 not all the time. No. I, most of my pots, I've got underneath a gum tree. Yeah. Um, but they're up on a bench in a pot yeah. in a gum tree, so they get a bit of light in winter where mm. the sun dips down yeah. uh, underneath the gum tree. Um, but in summer, so in summer, cool and dry is probably better. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, we're, we're, I think most of their native habitats either high altitude yeah. um, uh, or underneath deciduous shrubs and trees. Um, so while they're growing, they prefer a lot of sun. Yeah. Um, but a lot of those bulbs do. Yeah. yeah. Certainly the, the ones in the shade, I mean, they, they, they survive, but there's nowhere near the number of yeah. flowers. Yeah. And yeah. they can get quite deep too. I remember, so one of the, pretty much some of the first bulbs I ever grew and mm. were interested in were in the garden I grew up in Mount Macedon. Um, it was uh, Colchicum agrippinum. Yep. Um, and they'd been in the ground I reckon probably for at least 100 years, mm. maybe even as old as the property was. So that, that was 1870s, late 1860s, 1870s. Um, and when mum and dad sold the place, I thought I'd dig some up um, to take with me. And I remember digging a hole that was at least maybe 40, 50 centimetres deep before yeah. I started hitting bulbs. Yeah. And there was, in each cluster that would have been planted all those years ago, there was about... 200 bulbs, yeah. <laughs> but they're all compacted into an area of about 15 centimetres across. Because yeah. um, only four or five flowers would pop up each year. It was in the shade now. Right. Um, you get a lot of foliage, but yeah. you'd only get you know, four or five. Sometimes in a good year you might get 20 flowers in one little clump. Yeah. And to find 200 bulbs at the bottom of that hole, yeah. um, uh, and it was just, you know, they were so deep down and been there for so long uh, that they'd sort of stopped. But most of them weren't even flowering, yeah. And because it was too dense? Yeah, it was too too yeah, dense yeah. and too deep. So, it, it, again, in their native habitat, they often grow in sort of more gravelly soil that can shift easily with floods and, right. and erosion. Um, so uh, tulips are another good example of bulbs that have retractile roots. Mm-hmm. So if they're too shallow, they'll pull themselves down. Yeah. Um, but if that soil's not getting washed away, they get to a point where they sort of drown themselves out a little bit and they're waiting for... A, 
uh, some sort of natural disaster to happen <laughs> to get up to the surface again or disperse them or, yep. or whatever, yeah. Yep. So and did you replant those bulbs at the, at the new property? Yeah, yeah, out? so I've got... Uh, Hundreds of them now, yes. yeah, yeah, and they they regrew, yeah, the yeah, that, yep. yeah, yeah, beautifully. So, so it just, they just needed a bit of space, and um, and a lot of bulbs in the wild do that. They they sort of it's it's almost a, a, again like a defence mechanism. Um, Gladiolus are another one that do it, where they'll grow lots of little pips off the bottom of the bulb. Mm-hmm. The pips generally never do anything, but if that main bulb is disturbed or destroyed or there's a flood and it gets ripped out of the ground. These little pips are almost like ready to go seeds. Mm-hmm. So they're like, like lawn. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so they're essentially seeds, but they've got extra starch in them to give them a, a a more of, of a help than a seed has. Yeah, yeah. Um, and they can get lodged in smaller places and mm-hmm. and then yeah re- re-establish yeah. themselves somewhere different if they if the ground gets disturbed. Yeah. So if you have weedy gladiola in your garden, don't disturb them. That's yeah. and <laughs> the same goes with the with the weedy oxalis too. That's right. Exactly yeah. the same. Yeah. yeah. A, a lot yeah. of those oxalis aren't weedy at all yeah. until you start disturbing them That's in the right. ground and trying to mm. dig them up and get rid of yeah. them, and then mm. you just spread them everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> well, I tend to use cardboard and mulch. Yeah. On, yep. on top of a patch of weedy bulbs. And, and there's a lot of oxalis that aren't weedy at all yeah. until you just start to disturb them. Yeah. Mm. Uh, they're, they're clumping and they don't move around, but as soon as you start ripping the soil they up, they, they, all of a sudden yeah. they pop up in everywhere, yeah. everywhere. <laughs> they'll just come up everywhere. <laughs> yeah. um, but if you had to left them alone, they would have been fine. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right, you are listening to the 3CR Gardening Show. Uh, if you'd like to ask a question or I've got a comment about something, uh, give us a call on 94190155. I'm in the studio with Craig Wilson from Gentiana Nursery, uh, Chloe Foster and uh, Greg Balderston. Chloe. Let's have a look. You brought in a large box. Yeah, I brought in some... I did a ru- quick run around of uh, Branch Out Nursery yesterday where I work, so thank you to Paul for letting me l- borrow some plants this morning. Um, I just picked up some plants that were in flower because we're coming into winter and, yep, cyclamens are out and um, it's always good to have a, a range of plants in the garden that flower all year round for our aesthetic benefits and for, you know little insects and birds and everything that, that need a feed even in winter as well. So Banksia spinulosa is coming into flower at the moment. Um, I have a large, I have the large species form in my garden and it's covered in flowers, but there's this really common variety of dwarf Banksia spinulosa. It's a very popular variety, but I just love it. So it's Banksia um, birthday candles. Mm-hmm. And this little plant that I've got here at the moment has four flowers on it. And they're super cute. So this is the dwarf form of Banksia spinulosa. It gets to, um, it's just under a metre um, height and width. Grows in a really wide variety of soils. So it's one of the eastern species, east um, east coast species of Banksias. So, um, and it, you know, it's indigenous to the Melbourne area. So it, it grows, it grows in a wide range of um, our east coast soils as well so and flowering in winter so it's these beautiful golden coloured uh, flower heads with little orangey red um, hairpins on them at the end um, yeah it's just a beautiful little plant really fine foliage as well 
uh, for the banksias, and they just—they just—they're just such a good species of plant. Yeah, I love spinulosa. Yeah, and honey pots to me is fantastic. Honey pots yeah. is really nice. Yeah, yeah. There's a few. Um, there's quite a from, few of from them. From the spinulosa, yeah. spinulosa dwarfs, so it's coastal cushion and stumpy yeah. gold, and yeah. yeah, and yeah, they all are really prolific flowers. That's right, and, and, and you can whack them back if they get too tall, and they yeah. come away beautifully. You yeah. can cut them right down to the lignotuber if you want. I've done that with the one at home. It's yeah. gotten quite big, and I just thought, oh, I'll just get it out of the way. And it's it's re reshooted, um, unbelievable, beautiful, That's shiny, right. lush green yeah. foliage. And yeah. I need to do it to the rest of the plant yeah. now as well. Yeah. So yeah, there is something that you can prune really hard really if it does hard. get a bit out of yeah. control. But um, since this is a dwarf form, it's not really going to get out of control. But <laughs> <laughs> I hope not. Uh, and they're they're fantastic plants for. Um, Containers as well. Yeah. If yeah. you don't have a, a large garden or just want a few more extra plants, yeah. they are one of the ones. And if you want to keep them containers in the long term, you can root prune them in the summer oh, without any you? difficulty oh, at all. Oh, Mr. Bonsai speaks yeah. up. Yeah. In, in January is when you do banks here. Oh, and, and because they have those proteoid roots, they root prune really easily. Yep. Yeah. That's very good to know. Mm, I didn't yeah. know. I wondered, always wondered what you, yeah. You sort of, yeah, root, root pruning in the middle of summer seems odd, though, doesn't it, for that, everything else, but that's when you do those Australian leaves. When yeah. you do root prune, do you root prune vertically or horizontally? Both. Both, yeah. okay. Because I know with some plants, I'm um, thinking of lemon trees, they like to be root pruned vertically, so you cut a wedge out of, you know, the, long, the lengthways yeah. um, part of the plant. If you cut it off, if you just cut it off at the bottom, yeah. then it, like the the plant will essentially die. Really, if you cut yeah. the bottom, yeah, cactus, yeah. I've never I've never seen lemons as bonsai, but certainly kumquats. Yeah. So um, when I worked at Melbourne Zoo, we fought one of the the orchard swallowtail butterfly that they've got in the butterfly house. Yeah. Um, eats. We just fed it um, Lisbon lemons. So we've yeah. um, <laughs> there's almost like a lemon tree farm in one of the areas of the nursery at the zoo, um, and there's probably about 100 or so um, Lisbon lemons in 12-inch um, pots. Yep. That's small. Yeah, yeah. So there's, we have to water. Yeah, they're <laughs> almost bonsai, but we can we prune them incredibly hard, um, you know, the stems and, and foliage. But um, we, we used to root prune them as well, and we yep. cut a wedge, and we found that if you cut the bottom of the plant, yep. if you root prune the bottom horizontally and, and filled it up with potting mix, they just sort of... Wilted, they sort of drowned. Um, but yeah, cutting a, a massive what wedge out of it. What time of year? Oh, we we used to do it all year round. Right. So there's the the lemon trees are on a constant rotation yep. all year round. So maybe maybe if we did it at a different time of year. Yep. And yeah, a um, lot of citrus would probably have deep roots because they generally come from sort of warmer climes, don't they? Yeah. A lot of the citrus. Yeah, so they probably have dry climate. Yeah, so yeah. they probably have quite deep root systems. And I know. Often you buy the citrus in those big, long, deep pots yep. rather than just the ordinary stock standard yeah. pots. Yeah. yeah. I rest my case. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I've actually brought in a couple of uh, native citrus, uh, which we're selling at the nursery, and they're, they're, um, I've got them in pots. I've got a couple of the finger limes in pots. And uh, the, there's a whole bunch of native citrus, which, I mean, really, they're terrific. And um, you know about these from working in the butterfly house because they, a lot of them have uh, association with the um, dainty swallowtail butterfly, which is a, a gorgeous little native butterfly, um, the smallest swallowtail butterfly in Australia. And um, if, if people want to hop onto my Instagram, which is the Habitat Guru, um, you'll see I, p- I posted a, a small 
more video from the nursery yesterday. We've got a uh, citrus in Adora, which is the uh, Russell River lime, I think it oh, is. Right. And it, it actually looks like a, a small camellia bush. It has those nice, lush... I thought it was on a regular citrus, lush. that video that I saw. No, no, right. it's not. It's on a, it's on a native citrus. And um, there was about... Uh, oh, seven or so caterpillars of the um, dainty swallowtail butterfly and the caterpillars themselves are extremely ornamental and uh, certainly not damaging they're munching that munching away but um, not defoliating mm. by any stretch of the imagination and they'll pupate and uh, some may re-emerge in autumn but generally they'll hang on until spring and then you'll be um, yeah, rewarded with these beautiful, mm. beautifully sort of red, black with um, bits of yellow um, butterflies dancing around the place. So, and the the finger limes are um, another plant that they feed on. So they feed on all of the the, the native citrus. And um, I don't know if any of you guys they, grow. They'll finger feed limes, on choisia as well, which is in okay, the um, in which the is family. in the citrus family. Yeah. Right. yeah. Okay. So yeah. when the lemons were getting were a bit were slowing down a bit, we often we had a crop oh, of choisia. Yeah. Yeah. Feed on too. Yeah. So. Okay. So, but no, these finger limes—they're amazing, and, and they're, they're uh, extremely prolific. Um, I've got a couple in pots, and I know um, I know Pam's got quite a few mm. in pots. And pretty much from you know the first season that you've got them, uh, they'll start flowering and, right. and and producing a lot of fruit. So that's uh, yeah, they, they really are terrific. The, can we talk about the other? because yes, that's my favourite. I prefer. Oh. That one. It looks like. Um, it looks like an olive tree with the foliage. It does. So it's a similar yeah. shape, and it's a it's a duller green with a bit of a little on the grey side, I suppose. Well, it's a bit duller. Yeah, pricklier. <laughs> yeah. So this is the desert lime, which is uh, citrus glauca. The thorns are some of those thorns are bigger than the leaves. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's amazing, and the fruit is um, quite small. I suppose maybe slightly bigger than a small marble. Um, round, r- quite knobbly, and extremely sour. Like you'd you'd use it in preserves and and things like that. We've got a a tree, as you know, Chloe, at Karanga, mm. and it was absolutely massed with fruit this year. It was quite incredible. So the uh, the cafe stocked up on that. Um, but one of the interesting things, I mean, this comes from the desert regions of Queensland, New South Wales, and uh, South Australia, and when it's particularly dry and uh, there hasn't been rain for a long, long time, it um, can drop its leaves. And as you can see, its stems are extremely green and it ends up photosynthesizing through the stems. Right. Right. So it, it survives that way. So, I mean, we do have quite a few of the native citrus and more and more are coming into cultivation. And, uh, yeah, but th- those finger limes, they're terrific and they come in different colours. Uh, they, I mean, they all taste the same, but yeah. uh, they, they are really, yeah. Well, they'll grow in the garden in Melbourne, will they? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, they, they are a rainforest plant from um, north, northeastern New South Wales and southeast Queensland. Yeah. Um, and uh, so they're a rainforest plant, so they, they will take a bit of shade, but they grow fantastically in Melbourne. They'll grow as a, a shrub. I keep mine, well, I've got a couple um, that I've made into standards outside yep. the glasshouse. So they prune well. Prune extremely well. They're a crazy kind of plant. They, um, I mean, they've got small... I think Craig's looking at it for a bonsai, I reckon. Imagine a bonsai with the fruit on it. This one, I mean, you know, people use standard lily pillies and things. This just looks to me like it would be a perfect candidate. Well, it does have that tiny foliage. Yeah, yeah. And it always reminds me of, what's that character from The Simpsons, Bob? 
with his crazy sideshow kind of Bob. Bob. Yeah, it just kind of reminds me of him whenever I see it because it's uh, yeah, I mean it's kind of really crazy type foliage, but pretty bright green, extremely thorny, uh, so terrific for the little birds. Yeah. Yep. Um, and it's all like tiny citrus flowers with um, really beautiful aroma. Um, always covered in bees, honeybees and native bees and whatnot. So no, it's but a terrific plant. Things with straight thorns like that too, I don't think are as much of a problem as things like roses or blackberries that mm-hmm. have barbed, like that are hooked right. thorns and tear, tear your flesh. Oh yeah, come, <laughs> come to the nursery and move 50 of them. Oh yeah. no, I, yeah. I was just thinking, uh, 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 one of my favourite uh, berberuses is... Uh, uh, Berberus julienae, mm-hmm. which has thorns on it that would punch your tr- uh, truck tyres. Yeah, savage. Savage things. Yeah. But I hardly ever get stabbed shifting them because it's... And if you do, it's just straight in and out. They don't break yeah. little bits off yeah. and you yeah. don't get an abscess a couple of days later. <laughs> it's yeah. it's a it's a clean stab. Yeah. It's not a, a flesh... Uh, tearing uh, yes, that's rip. True. In, the, um, in the moment pain. So I think they're better than roses is what I was okay. saying. Okay. <laughs> well, I think they're better than roses anyway. Yeah. Not for no reason. <laughs> but yeah, no, certainly if, you, if you're looking at trying uh, native limes, the, either the desert lime or the finger lime. Uh, for me, the finger lime is uh, very versatile in the kitchen. I have it on eggs and all sorts of things and you can use it with fish. Yeah, you oh, just, it'd be yeah. nice with fish. On it eggs, is, though, would you? Yeah, on uh, scrambled eggs with salmon, and then you just squeeze out oh. the little... Um, Habitat is selling very <laughs> well for you, isn't it? <laughs> uh, yeah, so it, you can grow uh, finger limes in Melbourne. Okay, that's yeah. right. And I've seen them, finger limes, in the shop, and they're something... Super expensive. They're like $50 a yep. kilo, yep. and they're so easy to grow. They are very easy to grow. Yeah. yeah. They just they need, you know, relatively well-drained soil. Yep. Chuck a bit of compost and mulch. I believe that they're actually grafted onto a general citrus rootstock which is what most of our other sort of citrus trees um, are grafted onto mm-hmm. which is like a non-native um, rootstock but that's why they you know one of the reasons why they do well yeah. in Melbourne or yeah. In, yeah because it's a pretty generic compatible rootstock yeah yeah so they are um, more expensive I suppose yeah. than, you, than you would expect for a, a yeah. plant of that size but yeah they no, they do, they do terrifically well, that's for sure. And, I mean, you can grow them in sun or part shade. They're happy in either. I think the uh, commercial growers grow them in full sun um, to yeah, get abundant fruit, but uh, they are a rainforest tree, so they certainly will adapt to a bit of shade. Yeah. yeah. What else have you brought in, Claire? What else have I got? Um, more oh. natives? Or? Yeah, more natives. Woo-hoo. Where is it? Here we go. We've got to balance out uh, Greg and Craig here. <laughs> no, what I love about being here with Greg and Craig is you guys have brought in like species forms of of cool things. <laughs> that doesn't sound that doesn't make you, sense. You get to learn a lot. When I was overseas a couple of years ago, I was um, uh, travelling through you know Croatia and Eastern Europe, and I saw I was seeing like cyclamens growing yeah. on the forest floors, and I was like, this is so. I was so excited, and I realised that. I'm not plant racist. I love plants in their natural environment. Yeah. And I was so excited to see um, beautiful beech trees and mm, yeah. species cyclamens and everything. And I thought, okay, that's what I love. So when I'm in Australia, I love seeing plants in their natural environment. So that's our natives. But, um, yeah, it's really cool just to sit here with you guys and, and talk about, you know, the the crocus that grow in yeah. Europe and all that stuff. And, th- and thank goodness they're on together so that they can ask each other yeah. intelligent questions yes. because I'd have no hope. No, I have no <laughs> idea either, so it's good with you guys. Um, so this one is a... There's a, a, a new selection of plants that Bushland Flora have released 
um, the Correa Chimes range. Uh, I bought in Amber Chimes today, so I, I'm pretty sure the species of Correa is Correa pulchella. Mm. Um, they're a dwarf. Um, they're not so spreading. They're more like a tiny shrub form of Correa. So they get to about um, half a metre height and, height and width. Um, the amber chimes that I bought in today is a beautiful bright orange colour, and so they're coming. They're only just coming to flower at the moment. This plant here is covered in buds. It's got shiny shiny green leaves, and um, yeah, the flower. There's flower buds along all of the stems, so it's, it's about a beautiful to pop. pinkish orange too. It's a really soft. This one pinky is orange. yeah. The photo they're more like a reddy okay. orange, but. These are a bit, I think they're just a bit um, washed out, but they're still nice and bright. Yeah, they're still nice and bright. Polchellas are great. So yeah. They, and they, 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 they're dense without having to be pruned all yes. the time. Um, uh, yeah, I've got a Correa Autumn Blaze in the garden yeah. at home, and I've never, ever had to prune that, and that's, that's right. a really, really yeah. dense And that's, and that's a big that's a thing for natives. I mean, my, my experience with natives is constant pruning. Yes, yeah. yeah, from a young age, constant, you know, yeah. light tip pruning. Whereas this guy doesn't seem to need, need it so much. No, no, I don't think yeah. the, pul- the pulchellas yeah. don't need them as much. Mm, I think um, the uh, the breeders are, are certainly playing catch-up with all the um, exotic species that have been cultivated yeah. for hundreds of years. And, you know, finally, we, well, not finally, but we're really starting to get more and more species that are, are I suppose, more garden suitable. And selected. Don't selected. They don't yeah. need as much pruning. Yeah. Yeah. They're highly floriferous and yeah. resilient. Resistant to pests and diseases compared to some of those uh, species. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So the amber, so this, the one I brought in is, is amber chimes. It, there's uh, a white version and there's a pink version of the chimes as well that, that Bushland have released. So, you know, low water requirements, um, probably lower pruning requirement than other natives. Um, and flowering, you know, at this time of year, it's just such a bright. Uh, they're such a bright thing to have in the garden. And so. bird attractive. Yes, oh, yeah, the totally. The spinebills yeah. love them. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. the thing about Correas, I mean, there's only 11 species of Correas, but there's probably, I don't know, maybe 18 million cultivars. <laughs> um, but they are perfect for dry shade, are they not? Yes, they are absolutely. The plant, well, the native plant for, yep. for dry shade yep. conditions. So this one will grow in dry shade. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And, 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 and for blazing yeah, sun too. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. yeah, they, yeah. they're the, one of the most versatile plants. And, uh, yeah, I mean, and then there's things like the um, Glabra-Colaban River, which has got, um, again, really bright green foliage yeah. and a more upright form, and you just don't need to prune it. It just stays as a, as a nice kind Yeah, of and especially pollen. when you talk about, you know, people have spots in the garden that's dry shade mm. and you can't put it. It's often a darker area as well, yeah. and that Colaban River, because it's so bright, bright. the foliage is light. Flowers are kind of yellowy-green. Yeah. Co- yeah, Coria Glabra have yeah. yellowy-green flowers, so yeah. it's fantastic for those darker spots. Yeah, I, I can't speak highly enough about Correa's. I they're yeah. some of my favourite. Yeah, they're some of my favourite plants. So there's, um, a, yeah, Amber Chimes, if you like the bright orange ones. If you can't get hold of Amber Chimes, I would recommend Autumn Blaze or Ring-a-Ding-Ding, <laughs> which is a really cool name. <laughs> um, they're in the, um, bred by other, you know, other breed, breeders around, and they're in the, they've got... Um, they're ground covers with bright orange flowers and super, super tough. So, yeah, dry shade and they'll flower in shade. But uh, the, where I've got the autumn blaze at home is in front of a brick letterbox facing west. 
and they flower, yeah, they flower every year and we hardly have to touch them. So really, really tough plant. Mm. Yeah. And, I mean, the thing about, uh, well, Corias, but also plenty of other natives as well, is that um, depending on where they grow in the wild, um, they can be quite variable. And mm. so when you come into the nursery, for example, with the Coria reflexa, you might find a variety from Port um, Point Hicks, you might find the Anglesey variety and all of these plants are ever so slightly different yeah. so if you live along the coast you might select a variety that comes from a coastal region because you have better um, success with the plant so it's, uh, yeah, they certainly are um, yeah. I- incredible from that point of My view My other favourite Coria that Bushland Flora do is Coria St Andrews form Oh yeah, <clears throat> and it's Coria Elba and I'm assuming it's St Andrews down near Gunnamatta um, it's but for Coria alba the foliage is usually a dull green with um, you know white you know, white velvety. hairs on it yeah. yeah and the flowers sometimes the, f- the white color on the flower is a little bit dirty but the St Andrews form that they've got it's a beautiful um, pure white flower and the the leaf is a lot cleaner it's a it's a really it's it's a greener leaf on it has the most beautiful habit it's about a meet gets to about a meter wide and just under a meter high and just absolutely covered in, in beautiful, um, pure white flowers on it. So that's another really beautiful Coria to keep an eye out mm. for. And they do, they range in size from the ground covers mm. through to the Coria Lorenziana, which is known as the tree Coria, which, yep. you know, can be three, four, et cetera, metres high. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the, the There's a Coria for every spot <laughs> in the garden. <laughs> it totally is. <laughs> absolutely is. Yeah. Look, um, Lynn from Paran has called in, um, to say she's got a lemon tree, but this year her fruit has matured, but the flesh is very dry. Um, it's otherwise, the tree is otherwise healthy, and last year the fruit was good. Um, she um, she hasn't done very much watering, so I think yeah, yeah. Yeah. she's lacking she's, water. She's answered yeah. her own question. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah, water it a bit more. Food, lemon, food lemon trees, water. Yeah, yeah, lemon or citrus trees actually need quite a fair bit yeah. of water. Yeah, and they con- consistently, and they will show quite quickly if they need water because first of all the leaves will go a little bit dull and then they'll start drooping. And mm. I do speak from experience. And the fruit's dry. <laughs> and the fruit's and the dry. dry. Yeah, yeah. 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 I have an orange tree in a wine barrel, and the wine barrel's starting to degrade and fall apart, so it doesn't hold water. And the fruit, I need to do something about it. But I haven't got around to it the fruit is is often dry yeah. it's because it's not getting enough water and the wine barrel isn't holding the water for it so i think people underestimate the amount of food they need to, yeah you know I mean, they, when they, you they think about the size about of the fruit a, a handful of dynamic lifter you know for a decent sized lemon tree i'd put five or six kilos on it mm. yep over yeah. the course of a year no in one hit <laughs> <laughs> oh. really yeah you think of a decent sized lemon tree. oh in the garden yeah yeah yeah, yeah, yeah not yeah. a pot plant yeah because yeah. you're not just feeding the tree, you're also feeding the e- the ecosystem underneath the yeah. tree. So yeah. you're breaking down, uh, you know, you're feeding organisms that are breaking down bits of stick and wood and leaves yeah. and things like that, as well as the the tree that's using yeah. the nitrogen as well. Yeah. So um, yeah, you're feeding that environment and yeah. habitat rather than just the plant itself. If, if you have a decent plant yep. tree and you put five kilos or six kilos of dynamic lifter on with a load of mulch on top of it mm. and see what happens. Yeah, yeah. it's really going to perk. Actually, yeah. having yeah, with yeah. you having said that, <laughs> the, the citrus trees that we had at the zoo, we'd fertilise 
we'd almost have fortnightly fertilise on them, and in they're pots. in pots. Yeah, Because yeah. it just runs out. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And a mature lemon tree that's in the garden can use hundreds of litres of water a yeah. day. Yeah. So it's, yeah, as soon as we uh, cut back on the watering, and if we don't have that rainfall... Yeah. And because of their root systems, like we were talking about earlier with the deep uh, pots that they come in, a deep water, like a shallow water, is probably not great for lemon trees either, uh, or citrus in general. You'd want to give them a really deep soak. It won't, yeah, to, you to want get the water it down to get to the all the way systems. through. Yeah. Yeah. So you really want to put some aggy pipe in around them so you can get it right yeah. down. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I always yeah. thought citrus were shallow rooted, which is why they don't like other things growing around them. So. Well, that's, uh, with but the, you're right, they I, I think come the, in deep a lot pots. of the feeder roots, I think yeah. they have. They're, the critical part of their root system is probably quite deep, yeah. but they do have a lot of shallow roots, I mm. think. But I think uh, to make them, uh, you know, drought tolerant, I think it's the deep roots that are impo- yeah. the important ones. Yeah. So if it's yeah, the long, you're better off watering, watering it once a week or once every two weeks, really yeah. deep water yeah. in the ground, yes, um, rather than you know a little a, a bit of a misting spray at yeah. surface level every you know half an hour every day or so or 20 minutes every day. Mm. You're better off giving it that the big soak over uh, once a week or something. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Okay, let's get to some more callers. Hi, Joan in Parkdale. Hello. You uh, have a question about bulbs. Yeah, um, Jack, uh, or Jacoby and Lily. I had them, but I can't get them to flower. Um, are, they, are they in a bit of sun? Yes. Right. Um, and in pots or in the ground? In a pot. So it might be food? Food. That's might, what might I need say. a feed. Yeah. Um, they, I think the spicilius can handle being a little bit pot bound. Yeah, I wouldn't have thought that was an issue. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it might be a food issue. So yeah. maybe giving them something. Uh, most most bulbs don't like too much nitrogen. Yeah, so something with, something with phosphates and potassium in yeah. it to encourage the bulb. So the phosphates is good for the bulbs and the yeah. roots, and the potassium is good for flowering and fruiting. And split a few off and put some in the ground. Yeah, yeah, they actually do really well yeah, in the ground spicilius. Yeah. yeah. Um, so if they haven't been potted up for years and years and years, it mightn't be a bad idea to, to split them up a little bit and give them a, a fresh start. Yeah, well, they're, um, still, they're still green. They've still got their leaves on them. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure. When, when's the best time to do spicilius, Craig, do you think? When you feel like it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think they're pretty tough, uh, yeah, aren't they're, they? Yeah, they're almost evergreen, aren't they? Yeah, well, that's why, I was, that's why I was sort of thought, oh, when, when would I split mine up? But I, I think you're right. I think I just split them up when I have to, Yeah. yeah. <laughs> when, the, when the time's right. Um, so, but I think the food's probably the most yeah. important thing. If they look healthy, like if they look like they're not uh, splitting the side of the pot that they're in, um, maybe just, yeah, a, a bit of a, uh, maybe like some liquid tomato feed just to get them going and then, and then uh, a slow release and then a slow release on top yeah. of that to, yeah. for the long term. And what, what sort of just ordinary potting mix? Good potting mix. Probably, yeah, yeah. something that's, uh, that's probably sand based rather than uh-huh. completely, um, uh, organic matter. In the ground, they should be fine pretty much anywhere, I'd say. They're, yeah. they're, they're pretty tough in the ground. I, I was, but just for potting mix, um, and this goes for, again, most bulbs uh, prefer a sandy-type potting mix rather than a pine bark-based uh, pine bark right. one. So yeah. they don't mind pine bark in the potting mix, yeah. but you want some... Yeah, a premium potting mix is usually yeah. The, yeah. the best way to go for them. Potting mix it? is something you don't try and save money on. Yeah, no. buy yeah. the best quality yeah. you can get. Yeah. Yeah. That's the one with the yeah. red ticks on the label. Yeah, yeah. yeah. but um, 
I usually buy the the the, the top one, but it's not very uh, sandy. Yeah, you don't often see the sand in them, though. It's it's sort of um, unless they're sitting side by side, it's sort of hard to see the difference between the potting mixes. Mm-hmm. Um, but the ones without the sand in them look more like compost, and that's what they end up doing. But they do it in a pot around your root system of your plant, and most plants don't like uh, don't like that process so much, especially bulbs. They um, so it ha- the the potting mix has to stay open for as long as it's in the pot. Yeah, they um, have a sort of 18-month or two-year life potting mixes, don't yeah, they? And then yep. they need to be replaced. But but some bulbs you can put in much... You can even add sand to them, yeah. and then they can, they're can they quite happy in a pot for years and years and yeah. years. So you suggest I dip them out of the pot and repot them in this new soil. Now, do, are the, do they like their heads up, or do they like to be further down the ground? I think the heads up. I, I reckon just at the surface. Yeah. So w- when you unpot them... Um, the neck of the bulb you want it about the ground level, I would yeah. say, whether they're in the ground or in the pots. So um, they've got quite long, slender necks, um, but where the, the tunic of the bulb finishes and the, the leaves would emerge or have emerged, um, I'd keep that about ground level. Yeah. Um, and you could another way to do it is to leave them in a clump and just put them in a bigger pot yep. so you don't have to disturb the clump at all. You just tap them out of the pot they're in and put them in a slightly bigger pot with some fresh potting mix. And a bit of um, slow-release mixed into the potting mix. Yes, but I I reckon the crucial bit for the flowering that you're talking about now is the food. Um, So you probably don't don't need to pot them up uh, unless you wanted to, but definitely give them a feed. All right, that's very handy, because I grow chillips like weeds. (laughs) Year after year? Yes. Yeah, that's great. You dig them up and you put them somewhere else, and yep. then they, they come up, a few more come up where you had them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I don't have any trouble. I have trouble with daffodils. But, um, don't like the am- amaryllis. Try planting daffodils really deep. Oh, right, huh? Yeah. yeah. Okay, thank you very much. Good on you, Jane. Thank you. Bye. All right, and let's go to Robert and Mitchum. Hi, Robert. Yeah, good morning, all. Just a lovely morning and lots of sunshine we've got now. Oh, we'll it's, take your word for it. We're stuck in the studio at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, come out, you'll get it, enjoy it. You won't get much because we're going to cut an hour off at night. Yes, that's true. Yes. There you go. Look at uh, a, a pomegranate, the, uh, the little ornamental pomegranate. And on the, uh, the new growth, probably about two, three hundred uh, mil uh, from the end, it's been getting shriveled leaves. It's all, well, ne- nearly like leaf pearl or something like that, but uh, the edges of the leaves just tend to be shriveled and rolled rolled in from the edge about a millimetre. But, uh, any thoughts? So Are you watering, watering it? it? It's in a place that doesn't get a huge amount of water, but yes, we have been watering it uh, consistently. I'd try withdrawing the water. Try withdrawing the water? Yeah. They're real dry climate plants. They're quite tough, the, aren't they? Yeah, absolutely yeah. they are. Yeah. This is just a, the little ornamental. Yeah, yeah I've got one in my garden, but I never water it. You never? I, water I, it. never <laughs> not a drop. There's a couple in one of the gardens I work in too. There's two or three of them, and they're in fairly heavy soil, yeah. and they don't get any uh, uh, unseasoned water. Yeah. Um, and they put on big growth shoots and look really healthy and 
you know, one of them gets pruned really hard quite often because it grows too fast because yeah. well, I thought it was going to be smaller than what it was. <laughs> yeah, this is a, you know, it's been in, in the garden bed, in a garden bed under the eaves along the drive. Right. So uh, uh, we always think that it, it really does need to get some water, but uh, we haven't been watering it, but uh, we were just uh, a bit concerned about that because this, we were going to plant another one uh, there, and we had a small one sitting in a pot not far from it, and uh, it, it uh, at one stage got uh, very miserable and uh, looked, uh, lost a, a lot of leaves. We moved it uh, away, and it's recovered. But, uh, just weren't sure whether there was anything going on there or not. No, it, it seems like it's uh, growing okay. It's just it's got the the leaf curl on it though. So yeah, like Craig said, it might be just a bit of too much water or, or water when it doesn't need it as much. Um, and plants do react differently. I mean, to us, sometimes you might think, oh, leaf curl, oh, it's curling up, it needs that water, and you end up giving it more water, yeah. when in actual fact it's a reaction to too much water already. Mm, all right, that, that, that's interesting. Can I throw another one at you? Sure. A <coughs> uh, yeah, kumquat, the, uh, a kumquat with the, uh, the little long oval fruit. Mm-hmm. We had one, well, we've, we've still got one, uh, it, uh, it was in a pot and uh, probably about uh, or a metre, a bit bit over a metre tall. The possums got through it and happily uh, chewed most of the bark off. Mm-hmm. It struggled on for uh, a while after that and, uh, and at one stage started to throw up a bit of new growth, but then that, that died off. Now I finished up cutting the, the stem back to my mind, uh, probably about six inches above where I felt the uh, the graft was. Since then, it's thrown up new growth from there, quite vigorous growth with quite large leaves. Any thoughts? Is it likely to be rootstock or is it... Uh... Sounds like rootstock. Yeah. It's been disturbed, so it's probably like a yeah, defence mechanism of the plant to throw up those um, uh, yeah, that foliage from the rootstock. The... Uh, uh, the, the, the union where the graft was appeared to be, as I say, uh, a good six inches below where I cut it back. I don't know. It's um, it, if the leaves are very, very different, that really is one of the key, I suppose, deciding factors to know whether you've got the the rootstock or the the um, grafted on version. Uh, I mean, you could certainly just wait and see. <laughs> well, the rootstock will have great big thorns on it. It's usually pretty apparent. Yeah. 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 There's no, no sign of thorns at this stage. Yeah. yeah. But, uh, and it, uh, it's shot up. It's probably well, it, it, it's a, a good metre uh, uh, tall above that. That's set up a main shoot, and then that's branching off. And so that uh, metre of growth happened quite quickly, is it? Fairly quickly, yes. Yeah, I'd say it's rootstock. Yeah, sounds yeah. like it. Yeah. But, I mean, you could always just wait and see. I mean, if, if it's not apparent where the graft actually is, then you can't cut that back. Um, but, yeah, it, it does sound like rootstock. Mm. What's it likely to develop into? Don't know. Something that you don't want in yeah. Yeah. yeah, a, a wild citrus that'll yeah. have weird crinkly fruit that will be dry and full of brine, and it won't yeah. be nice at all. Yeah. There you go. I've good news. Sometimes <laughs> you have to view these things as an opportunity. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Thank you very much. Thank you. Good on you. Thanks, Robert. My cousin's lemon tree at his place, I mean, he's a bit plant blind, um, 
I was looking at their back deck one day and I could see, I think it was a Lisbon lemon, be- heaps and heaps of lemons. And then you could, there was just one, the graft was very low. It was probably only about three inches from the, from the ground. Yeah. There was this one stem going straight up from the yeah. base of the tree. It looked, like the, it looked like the tree had forked. It was that close to the ground. The diameter would have been, you know, two inches or something, straight up with weird, crinkly, orangey-coloured fruit that looked different to the Lisbon lemons on the same tree that he thought. Um, the spines, there was thick, thick spikes all the way around the top of the of the stem. I said, your rootstock has shot. Can you see the difference between them? He goes, oh, yeah. <laughs> I thought they looked different. But, yeah, like, and I said, when you cut, just cut it off at the base, but when you cut it off, make sure that you don't disturb the bark or, or cut, you know, with the prunes or don't cut into the bark of the of the lemon tree that's there or don't cut into the graft, don't wound the graft because then you'll get more, you often get more reshooting of the graft you from below. You encourage it to And you encourage it, yeah. yeah. It's hard to do yeah. anyway when you're actually removing it. It's hard so, to I mean, not damage it. Yeah. Not yes, damage yes, because it is, yeah. You're well, you're damaging, damaging it anyway. anyway. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. probably don't let them get that big before you remove them. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you really can rub them off with your finger. Yeah. That's ideal. Yeah. yeah, yeah. No, no, this was about three metres tall. Yeah. <laughs> Um, Greg, any more plants that you've got? I have. In? I'm not sure which what to what to do next. I'll, what, I might go for we're the. We're talking um, about what about the um oh, the persimmon. Persimmon. The persimmon. Okay. Yeah. yeah. We want to have a persimmon so discussion. <laughs> so I uh, a, an old gardener I used to work up in Mount Masson for from a, a friend. Um, she had a persimmon planted out in the garden that the wallabies loved, mm-hmm. and they used to chew on this thing, and the whole time. I remember working there, which I think was for about five or six years before she moved to Woodend to where she is now. Um, this tree was never more than about 20 centimetres tall. <laughs> Usually only had one or two leaves on it. Um, and the, the shoots, the, each season's growth shoots were very small and weak and they would only get a few, in, uh, a few centimetres long before something had chewed them off. And the, I think I hit it with a whippersnipper once. <laughs> um, it was a very poor, poor tree. Uh, so when Mary sold her house, I dug it up and took it home and planted it in the garden and pretty much forgot about it. But it, it's I put it in a spot where my little misting house, it's where the water runs out, so it's got a pretty good water supply. Um, and it sat there and sulked for a couple of years and then it started to shoot and shoot. And now it's got... Uh, it, didn't, it took about uh, nearly 10 years to get the first fruit on it. Um, and each year the fruit get more and more and bigger and bigger. Mm-hmm. So the ones on it now are about tennis ball size, maybe a little bit bigger. Um, the one I've bought in is about tennis ball size. Mm-hmm. Um, and this year it's covered in it to the point where the branches are arching over and dropping on the ground. Mm-hmm. But usually the rats or birds get them a day or two before I think, oh, they're probably ready to pick now. Yeah, I've, I've worked out you have to, you can never say out loud, yeah. oh, I'm going to harvest tomorrow <laughs> because the rats go, oh, great, better yeah. get in first. Yeah. <laughs> Um, but they're just such pretty trees, and yeah. you know, even if you wouldn't eat the fruit off them, just as an ornamental tree, the the leaves on them are beautiful. Uh, the fruit's gorgeous at a time of the year when you know you've got autumn colour, but there's not a lot of um, flowers uh, so much around. So you get these beautiful orange and 
yeah. and red fruit. Mm. And um, they have spalia really well. Yeah. Oh, they would look fantastic yeah. as yeah. an espalier. They make great espaliers. But, yeah. but they're, uh, even naturally, they're a really nice shaped tree. Beautiful they're, they're, trees. The habit, yeah. the habit of the persimmons is really beautiful too. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, it was just the the heart of this tree to go from this little weak thing that had been bashed for so long to this uh, most glorious tree that's probably in the wrong spot now because I didn't think it would ever grow really. Do you eat them when they're, f- when they're ripe? Uh, I do, do yeah. 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 And, I, and I give a lot away, especially yeah. to Mary who, who owned the tree originally. Yeah. I, um, she loves persimmon, so I always, because uh, I, I still work in her garden, um, so whenever, I, whenever they're ripe, I always take... She gets the most of them because it's her persimmon. Yeah. <laughs> Still, yeah. I just uh, uh, look after it at the moment. But, um, yeah, just a gorgeous tree. And, and you don't see them around very much or used no. very much. It's it's really strange that, you know, there's a lot of fruit trees that are used for good reason. Um, but here's something that's beautifully ornamental mm. and yeah. produces quite a lot of fruit. They're in a lot of old gardens, but you don't see them yeah. around. Yeah, yeah. there's much something anymore. very special about fruit that it's truly seasonal. Yeah, yeah. yeah. it's a really specific time of the year that you can get them. And I like that. Mm. Mm. Yeah. And, and we were talking earlier, and Craig, you were talking about the difference between the astringent versus non-astringent. Yeah. Stephen and I had an argument about that. It was savage. <laughs> Stephen well, you're likes, here, so you Stephen likes, won, Stephen. Stephen likes astringent, and I like non-astringent. The non-astringent ones, I, I don't think you'd be able to buy astringent these days. Mm. They're all non-astringent. You can eat them when they're hard and crisp. Yeah. Yeah. Would well, you want to bite into this one and find out where yeah. <laughs> you're looking a bit green, Greg? Yeah. It is a bit hard. Yeah. It's a, a non-astringent you could eat. Like that. A little bit more Crispy, ripe than yeah. that. Yeah, Just yeah. a little bit. Well, yeah. I noticed some, something had bitten into one recently. Yeah. And the flesh inside's actually quite coloured. Yeah. And, and looks a little bit softer than I thought it would be when you look at the rest of what's on the tree. Yeah. Um, but as I say, it's always that game of where you're playing, do I pick it now? And it's probably not going to be quite as tasty if I let it ripen somewhere or... Or the birds will get it. Or I'm going to mm. not get anything anyway. Yeah. <laughs> and you do see them in fruit shops, the astringent variety, and they are... You know they're ready to take home when they are soft and and, and gooey. So really don't, mushy. Yeah, really mm. mushy. So if you uh. see it in fruit shops, don't be put off by the fact that it is looking uh, rather average. It's That's the time what they're to wait for it. Yeah. Yeah. Look like. yeah. yeah, yeah, fantastic. But and and fruit on trees is something that they you know d- d- aren't, isn't thought of as much either. Um, but there's lots of crab apples and berberus and. Um, viburnums and holly and so many things that have gorgeous fruit uh, even like the uh, dianellas and a lot of native plants too have yeah. these uh, gorgeous colourful fruit on them and it's a question I don't think so asked when you're buying something you always question when does it flower. flower and how long does it flower for yeah. but there's so many things where the fruit can be as important or more important than anything else the plant does. Mm. Certainly and if you're buying crabs, I would have thought yeah, the yeah. fruit's fundamental. Well, and some of the viber- like Viburnum opulus knot cuts yeah. has the most gorgeous fruit on it yeah, um, right. for a, such a long time at a time of the year when yeah. you really see them. They've got you know yellowish autumn colours on mm. them with these bright red glass beads mm. all over them. They're stunning, um, stunning plants. And quite yeah. often the fruit stays on the plant for a while because it's developing yeah. Yeah. and ripening yep. and all that, and then it'll hang on there for a while after it's you know fully... Yep ripen so Way it longer. just extends the season of yeah. flowering and fruiting so so often mm. you know something like a dogwood you can get a dogwood that has a nice flower on it and you can get a dog dogwood that has nice flower and nice autumn color on it yeah. mm. but you can get ones with 
fruit those as well. Those and the fruit. That's and right. that might be something else to add extra to the yeah. garden. Yeah. For and um, one that not many people plant these days is Calicarpa, which is fruiting now. It's a beautiful thing that has tiny little clusters of purple berries and it holds them after it drops its leaves. Well, that's, I was thinking about that with the persimmon as well because... Some of the trees that I've seen, bright orange fruit on it, the, the leaves the have leaves already, already dropped gone. off yeah. them too, yeah. so it's just these bright orange balls hanging on sticks. Like yep. yeah. That's astringent. Yeah. Right, okay. Say, yeah, because the parrots haven't eaten them. Yeah. Yes, well, so yeah, they're totally untouched. Because yeah. <laughs> <laughs> these are all, always gone by the yeah. time the leaves yeah. are gone. That's a good way of thinking about it, yep. yeah. Uh, Bernie has uh, rung in and would like to know when to prune pelagoniums and geraniums. I would say um, when they start growing in the spring, that'll be my guess. Mm-hmm. Leave them alone over winter. Yep. And when you see them starting to move in the spring, that'll be my guess. So the, the geraniums cover a bit bigger range of plants, from bulbous things to perennials, and but the pelagoniums you don't want to be cutting into when they're not doing much, do you? Cause That's right. There's mm-hmm. a chance they'll yeah. get a bit like salvia. Yeah. Much the same. And might rot away. And I would say that almost all of what we call geranium is pelagonium, mm. and the geraniums yeah. are, in fact, herbaceous perennials. Mm. Or yeah. bulbs. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. yeah. There's a couple of bulbous varieties, yeah, too, which are really pretty. Yeah. I really mm. think we should just change them to geranium because it's, it was all over. You know, it's in magazines as geraniums generally, so yeah. we, we all know them as geraniums, yeah. don't we, when yeah. they're pelagoniums. Yeah, but and there's some of the beautiful native ones too. I know up at Mount Macedon there's a couple of pelagoniums that pop up in the rocky outcrops at the top there. Mm. Um, and they get the most beautiful... Um, the flowers are, are lovely, but the foliage, that when they, it gets a bit chilly or something, the foliage goes bright reds and yellows. Um, yeah. So they get these beautiful colour variation in the foliage as well. Yeah. Um, and they're more of a perennially sort of herbaceous perennial type plant rather than the, the big hybrid pelagoniums too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I mean, the, the good thing also about pruning them at the right time is you can then just have plenty of cuttings and uh, yeah. you know, strike yourself a bunch right. of new plants as well. Yeah, yeah mm. no, fantastic. Um, all right, so uh, Craig, anything? Oh, I see. Doug's just brought in a plant for identification. So what was it? Uh, Roscoia, I think. Yeah, that's what I thought it was, but I couldn't remember yeah. uh, exactly if that's how you said it or not. Yeah. So I thought... I'd it's in the ginger family, yeah, but yep. it's an alpine. Yeah, yeah, cool. Craig, uh, we've got a few more minutes. What would you like to talk about? Uh, dwarf conifers. Look, and I, I grow a whole heap of these little pine trees. Mm-hmm. Um, I think dwarf conifers got a bad rap when people used to buy a lot of cutting-grown ones, and they were, in fact, not dwarf. Uh-huh. I think McDonald's car parks have got a lot of <laughs> yeah, as well. Yeah, <laughs> Yeah, that's right, those dreadful gold thuyas. Oh, yeah. A whole raft of really beautiful dwarf conifers, always grafted. If you can't see a graft, then I would be reluctant to buy them. Mm-hmm. Um, then the pines come from witches' brooms, which is like a, a contorted growth which comes from the branch of the tree, and the, um, the the collector will go up there and take the witches' broom off and then graft it onto the, the species. Mm. So is it like a mutation of the plant? Yeah, that's right. right. And every now and again, a real pearler will turn up mm. and you get something beautiful. You yeah. see, if you often look at uh, old conifers, I know there's a few up in some of the gardens at Mount Macedon where I know where there's witches brooms. Yeah, that's right. Mm-hmm. So you, you often you, see them on the yeah. radiators. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And uh, the Douglas firs and yeah. things like that. You, you, so it's always interesting to... I actually found one on a maple once up in yeah. Mount Macedon and the owners wanted me to cut it out because they thought it was ugly. And I just... 
thought it was the best thing ever. Like, yeah. that's the whole, that was the best part of the tree. It was just <laughs> yeah. an ordinary Japanese maple except for that. Oh, so it's but not a mistletoe that's... Um, yeah, it was actually a, like a... Similar, you could think similar. it was a mistletoe. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. what it looks like. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. 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 And contrary to popular belief, none of the dwarfs are used for bonsai. The Japanese always use the big forms oh. um, because they're too slow. So this is what I've got in my hand now is um, Pinus thumbergii, which is the Japanese black pine. And there's two forms, the straight Yasabusa, which would probably get to about two metres, I suspect, and it's a garden plant. And then there's another one which is more compact. Um, I haven't got a name on it, but it's also a Yasabusa black. Very um, compact. Very compact. That yeah, that's right. You sent photos of these into the... The yeah. Facebook page, didn't yeah. you? Good. Yeah, so people can go and have a look at them. Yeah. Um, and then uh, this this one I sent into Facebook. This is um, Pinus strobus, which is a North American pine, and there are lots of different forms of strobus. I think probably because the Americans like conifers and they go out looking for them, mm. <laughs> rather than the, particularly because the species makes more witches' brooms. Yeah. Uh, and then the one in my is in my right hand is called Mary Mac. Now I pruned Mary Mac for Peter Tease a couple of years ago, no, a couple of months ago, and it was about three meters high, I think. It would have been about forty years old. Oh wow! Yeah. So they're very slow growing. Very too. slow growing. Yeah. yeah. And strobus is quite soft too, isn't it? Strobus is beautiful. It's one you can yeah. fall on without getting. Heaps of yeah. holes in your skin. And it's also the <laughs> colour. I, mean, I was looking at that little um, greggy eye you've got down there. Oh, the salvia. The yeah. red greggy eye and thinking how beautiful it would be next, planted next to Pinostrobus. Yes. For the colour contrast. The, 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 there's a gardener that I follow on Facebook in Michigan who uses them with succulents and grasses and all sorts of things. Yep, beautiful. All yeah. right, Craig, unfortunately we have run out of time, so right. he throws them back in the box, <laughs> which is a bit of a bummer. But uh, right. look, that, thank you so much um, for Craig, Chloe and Greg for um, sharing your knowledge today. It's been terrific. Thanks so much to you, Doug, uh, for manning the phones from the other side of the glass there. Um, and thank you to the listeners for tuning in to the 3CR Gardening Show. My name is A.B. Bishop and it's been a pleasure talking to you. Until next week, bye for now. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.